See if you can say this along with me, okay? And he said to, the, to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. All right, now last week, I let you cheat by looking at the screen to see the reference, and everybody got it right. How about today? Matthew 22, 37 through 38. All right, that was our memory verse for this last week in the Experiencing God study. And um, we got another one that starts tomorrow. I hope that you jump in with that and memorize Scripture. Apply it to your mind as we go through this. Today we're going to transition to talking about how um, once we are in this love relationship that we've already been talking about, um, God invites us to become involved in what he is doing. Now, a lot of Christians talk a whole lot about how limited they are. I can't do this, or I can't do that. Um, I'm just not able to do it. Or I can't talk to this person about Jesus. I don't know the words to say. When I try to speak, it's like everything just kind of freezes up. I don't, I don't know how to do that. Or they say things like, um, I, I, wanna, I want to serve God. I just don't have the skills or the talents that are needed to do that. The problem is that when we say things like that, we are saying more about what we believe about God than we are about ourselves. There was a word that I used heavily when I was, I was kind of giving you those statements. By the way, each one of those statements that I used a moment ago are all ones that I've heard here in our church. I just don't have the ability or the skill or the words or whatever. And I get it. It's, it's kind of scary sometimes to live the Christian life. But there's a word that I use there, and it's the word I. I can't do this. I don't have the skills or talents. I, I, I. And oftentimes we look at ourselves like, I just can't do this. And you're exactly right. You can't. I can't live the Christian life the way that I'm supposed to live it. But what that communicates is more about what we believe about God than about what God can really do. Um, when Jesus is calling the disciples, he's calling a bunch of ordinary people. They've got no spiritual background. They've got no formal education or training in spiritual things. They're just ordinary fishermen and tax collector and, and other occupations. They're not anybody special. But when Jesus calls them, he gives them the ability to do what needs to be done. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 17, it was actually in our song that we sang earlier at VBS, all right? Um, he says, follow me and I will make you become. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the one that's going to make you become. And in this case, he's talking about fishers of men. I will make you become fishers of men. But it's Jesus doing the work. It's not me doing the work. Several times when, when Paul is writing to, to churches full of new Christians, he writes to them about how it is God's supernatural power that works through them and in them. It's not up to them to produce the results. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, for it is God who works in you. Catch that? Who is it? It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you to carry out his will. It's not up to you. Another passage I think about is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who, live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, this means that when Kivet is a Christian, who Kivet was before becoming a Christian is dead, is gone. 
The old things, the old nature, the old way of thinking, the old way of doing things, all of that is gone. And the life that Kivit now lives as a redeemed human being is lived by faith in who? Kivit? No. That's a really, really good thing. Because my ability and my power is nothing. I am a fallible, often weak, often wrong human being. So if it was tied up in me and my ability, then things would go wrong over and over and over and over and over again. But that is not at all what Paul says here. Paul says, no, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. None of this is my doing. If I want to live the victorious, life-changing Christian life, then it has got to come because I have heard and responded to these words from Jesus, follow me and I will make you to become. That's it. Follow me. I'll make you to become. Whatever it is you want, Lord, that's what he's going to make me to become when I follow him. So here's two questions. The first question is this, have you responded, first of all, to God's, or to Jesus' call to follow him? Because over and over and over and over and over again, when Jesus is reaching out and he's calling people to himself, he calls them and they respond with a follow. They simply follow Jesus. So have you responded to that call to follow Jesus? Because it's for everybody. It's for absolutely everybody. In fact, Jesus says the Father is drawing all men to himself and he uses Jesus to do so. Here's the second question, though. Who is it that's making you to become? Is it you or Jesus? Because if it's you, then everything that, that you're trying to work for is tied up in your ability and in your power. But if it's Jesus that's making you to become, then that is where life transformation is going to happen. Now take your Bibles and go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. In the Gospel of John, specifically here where we're going to be in chapter 14, we've got what is referred to as the upper room discourse. Okay, this is the teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples after Judas has already left the room to go betray Jesus. Um, this is Jesus' parting words before, his, before he dies the next day. I want to read actually a large portion here of chapter 14 so we understand the full context. Okay, we're going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to focus in a couple of moments, though, on verse 21. So start reading in verse 1 with me. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Well, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, 
Oh, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then here's verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's read verse 21 again, okay? That's the one we're going to focus on. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's an issue that's been a part of um, this, has really been an issue in Christianity ever since the early church. Um, In in fact, uh, Paul, in many of his early church letters, he addresses this as he writes to these churches. In every single religion around the world, with the exception of gospel-centered Christianity, you have to work to have peace with whatever God it is that you believe in. And whatever the God that is, and you just kind of fill in the blank of of what the major religions all around the world, you have to work to have that peace. So if you just do enough good things or you don't do enough bad things, then you're going to be good and you're going to have a relationship with your God. And and, and when you die, you're going to have a better life to come than than the one you have right now. Now, in all of these religions, there's a dependence on adhering to a set of moral values. And your adherence to these moral values gains you happiness, and it gains you favor with whatever God is that you believe in. Legalism um, is depending on moral law to put you in right standing with your God. That's what legalism is. It's depending on a set of values or a moral law to put you in right standing with your God. Now, there's a graphic up on the screen that's going to kind of help us understand this. In fact, if you look at the top part up there, that's where we start when we talk about legalism. In fact, legalism says that we start with, I know that there is a God and I know he is worthy of being loved, so I'm going to obey God's moral law and do exactly what he says so that in turn God will love me. And the cycle keeps going on and on and on and on because we're always trying to figure out how can I make sure that God loves me? We realize that God is worthy of being loved. We realize here's what he says for us to do. So if I just do these things he says, then God will love me. And that's so many religions all around the world where that's just just how it works. Let's go back to verse 21 again. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the legalist reads this verse and they say, you know what? This is God saying, all right, keep my commandments to show that you love me, and then I'll love you. And even though our gospel training that we may have had in church for years tells us that that is not how it's supposed to work, there is this little voice that is a lie from Satan that if I just do enough good and don't do bad things, 
then God will be happy with me and he will love me. But if for some reason I don't meet the standard or I don't meet muster, and if I don't do all the right things, then God doesn't love me and I have failed to meet God's standard. And here's the reality. Some of you live in this. And I'm not talking about it's, it's something that you struggle with every now and then. I'm talking about you live in this. You live feeling defeated because you fall back into the same sins over and over and over and over again. You live defeated because you don't think that you have any kind of worth or any value. So how could God see any value in you? If you don't see it in yourself, how could God see it? Many of you carry the guilt of past sins with you. And you think that if you can just volunteer enough in the church or, or maybe be a good enough counselor at Marywood, or, or, or keep from cussing, or give money to the church, or to good causes enough, then God's going to be pleased with you. But listen to me, that's not the gospel. That's not the truth. The gospel says that God saw me at my worst, and he chose to love me at my worst. And in my worst times of rejecting him, he chose to draw me to himself and make me the one who is his greatest enemy because of my sin, make me his child. The gospel-centered Christian joyfully says, I keep God's commandments because God loves me. And because God loves me, I love him. And because I love him, I then keep his commandments. So here's what that looks like on a different graph. It's once again starting at the top. God loves me. And because God loves me, I love God. And because I love God, I obey God. And it's not so that I can work for the love of God. In fact, there is nothing in this world that can separate me from the love of God. Satan himself can't rip me from God's hand. And when I see all of this, it, what God has done for me, it produces in me a love for God that is born not because I've been able to generate some kind of love for him, but because he already loves me. And I realize that my obedience to God is not my trying to earn God's favor or God's happiness with me. No, I obey God because God's favor has already been given to me freely. I didn't have to work for it. It's a free gift. There's nothing I could ever do to earn it. It's just given to me. And y'all, that is absolutely amazing. Verse 21 again, let's read it. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's the proof. That's how we show the world that we love God. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and get these words, and manifest myself to him. Let me ask you something. Do you want to see God? Do you want to experience God? Do you want to move outside the mundane, day-to-day -day things that just leave you in a rut? Do you want to know God? Do you know it can happen? It can absolutely happen. God promises here that he will manifest, Jesus promises that he's going to manifest himself. He's going to show us himself. He's going to work in our lives and when we get to the point of understanding the love that God has for us, and when we love him in return, and when we obey his commandments because of the love relationship that we have with him, that's when Jesus manifests himself to us. That's when he shows himself to us. 
Now, one of my favorite stories of how this all plays out is one that you've heard before. Um, in fact, I've told it. I think Pastor Rick has told this story when preaching before. But as I was thinking, this is the story that came to mind. 1904, there was a young man by the name of William Borden who graduated from a, Ch- a Chicago high school. He's heir to the Borden family fortune. And you might remember Borden by the name on the milk jug. You may remember that. In fact, when he graduates high school, he's already a millionaire. Imagine that. You graduate high school and you're a millionaire just like that. Well, for a graduation par- uh, present, his, his parents sent him on a world trip. And so he goes to Africa and Asia and Europe. And while he's on this trip, he becomes so captivated by the love of God, that, the love that God has for him, that he starts seeing other people in a completely different light. And he starts realizing the love that he has for other people because of the love that God has for him. And he writes back to his family and he says, I believe that God is calling me to be a missionary. Well, his friend is absolutely flabbergasted at this. In fact, his friend um, writes back to him and he says, you are throwing yourself away if you're a missionary. A story that's often associated with Borden is that in response to those words his friend wrote him, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. It's the words, no reserves. No reserves. Borden then goes on to, um, to Yale, and he's working on his education at Yale. And in his journal, he writes, say no to self and yes to Jesus every single time. So he begins this Bible study, and, and it, it starts just with him and one other person. Just the two of them, every single morning, early in the morning, they get up and they pray and they read the Bible together. And soon, it doesn't take long at all. In fact, in Borden's second year at Yale, his sophomore year, the number of people who are attending this Bible study in small groups all over campus is 1,000 students. Now, there's only 1,300 students at Yale at this time. That's the vast majority of the student body who's attending this Bible study that Borden started. Everywhere he goes, he's ministering to people, to the poor in the streets, and to, to anyone that can, he can share Jesus with, he goes and he shares Jesus. In fact, as, as time went on, One of Bill Borden's friends wrote, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I have ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always always felt that he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. I told you before that Bill Borden was a millionaire, but he... According to one of his friends, seemed to realize that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusements. When he graduated from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. And about this time, it's reported that he wrote in his Bible two more words, no retreats, no retreats. He went on to graduate from Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, and when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. And because he's going to go minister uh, with Chinese Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt so he could study Arabic. But while he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, the 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Borden's death was, was telegraphed back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every single American newspaper. It was written these words, a wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous, get this, in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. So you ask the question, well, was Borden's untimely death a waste? 
No, not at all. Not in God's perspective. Right before his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. So underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, it's reported that he has written, no regrets. That's a 25-year-old who might have known at this time that he was going to die. So how in the world? How in the world has one man made such an impact? I'll tell you how. He came to such an understanding of the love that God had for him that it absolutely changed everything about who he was. And his response was, how can I not serve my God because of this? All right, so then we come to this setting today where we're sitting here and we're hearing this and we're hearing the story of William Borden. And let me ask you, have you been so impacted by the love of God that it has absolutely drastically changed your life? To where you can even now say, you know what? It doesn't matter what it is, where God calls me to go, what he calls me to do, I'm in. I'll always say yes to God and no to the world. That's a decision every single individual person has to make. So it's up to you. I can't make it for you. You have to make that decision. Father, would you help us to make the right decision? Lord, would you help us to come to such an understanding of your love that it drastically changes our lives for the better to where, Lord, now we're not looking at ourselves and seeing our weakness, but we're realizing that it is Jesus who makes us to become. And when he does that and when we are impacted with the love of God, then we can't help but be used by you. So, Father, would you impact us so much that when we see you working around us, we just simply join you in that work. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrificial death that made my life possible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.